Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. How do we move through the uncomfortable but necessary process of acknowledging hurt we've caused? Our guest today, Dr. Molly Howes, author of A Good Apology, Four Steps to Make Things Right, explains that a good apology requires listening rather than justifying, and how collectively what we all really want is the assurance that the pain wasn't for naught and that it won't happen again. She walks us through the four stages of a good apology and what happens when the steps aren't complete. We talk about how we can apply these steps personally in our own homes and more widely in our communities. I found Molly's advice incredibly prescient and grounding. I hope people who are trying to do this can be compassionate to themselves because it's a hard thing to do. And it's a hard sort of cultural model to go against, but it makes all the difference. Okay, let's get to my conversation. There's a lot of, as you point out, mythologies about apologies and making good apologies and what's involved. And you also talk about the fact that even the phrase, I'm sorry, is useless in many ways because it has so many other applications. But what do you think is the biggest stumbling block for people as they're considering ways to make their relationships right? Yeah, there's more than one. But one really big one is that if I approach an apology, it means I'm admitting that I'm wrong, that I'm to blame. And I don't think that's necessary at all, but it does stop people from approaching a good apology. Can you tease that out for us? Because it it's really subtle, but I think it's really important. So the question of blame is relevant in court, but it's not so helpful in relationships, I think. And if someone is hurt, 
and it's because of something you did, it doesn't necessarily mean you did anything wrong because we hurt each other by mistake and unknowingly all the time, even in ways that we couldn't have predicted. Mm -hmm. But we still hurt them and we care about that. So it's a matter of care weighing more than blame. Do you know, it's just a different framework. And even in the process of the framework that you create for how to give a good apology, the idea, too, is that you're doing more listening and more understanding of how it landed rather than your particular role in it. Like you make it not about yourself. Especially in the beginning. Right. Can you just take people just at a, a quick gloss over the four steps? The first step is not about saying anything. It's not about saying I'm sorry. It's about listening. It's about the other person's experience of pain or hurt or disappointment or something. And it's not about your reasons or your intentions or your qualities as a person. (laughs) It's not about you at all. It's just about learning about the other person, which makes it hard for most people because it's receptive and not active. The second step is what we usually think of as an apology, which is, saying some words in a sincere way that express your regret and empathy and usually responsibility for what happened to the other person. And then step three is making restitution. It's making the wrong right, correcting something or replacing something that was lost. Step four is about making sure that the hurt doesn't happen again. So that means setting up some kind of changed reality, changed system, so that the conditions that caused the hurt in the first place aren't just repeated. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I love at the very beginning is that you establish that there, you write, just as there's no statute of limitations on hurt, there's no time limit on feeling bad about having hurt someone. So mm-hmm. this work often, and I think you liken it to an immediate injury that sometimes it's better when some time has passed, but that there's really no wrong time. It can be years. There's no wrong time to start to address. Because I think what we're seeing collectively right now and culturally is that everyone, uh, not everyone, but many people are like, this happened in the past. Let's move on. And clearly there's a festering wound there. And until we address it and repair it as best as we can, There is no moving forward. But there are a lot of examples in our culture, whether it's in South Africa or what's happening in Rwanda. Like there are examples of restitution and repair. And there are examples of people telling their stories, which are very powerful. Even just saying what harm you experienced can make it possible for people to begin healing. It's That was the good thing about the Truth and Reconciliation Courts. Right. So, yes, but on a personal level, that's true, but it's also personal on a, it's also true on a larger scale. And about the historic harms, then there's a specific application of that fault issue, right? Like, I didn't cause any of the, you know, economic inequities that affect people of color now. I didn't do any of that. However, I benefited from it. Mm-hmm. And from my seat, it looks like that's a good enough reason to take responsibility for making something fair. No, I totally agree. And when you think about the 
accumulation of guilt or the pylon of guilt. Nobody's going to feel better in 10 years if this continues and it's only become more aggravated by time, right? right? Like there's no time like the present to start to repair and address this and make it better and right going forward. That's all we can do. I think there is a time that would have been better, which is a long time ago. But yeah. since we didn't, this is the be- next best time we have right now. And it's right. going to take a long time. So it's so let's get started. Yeah, exactly. And what do you think? I know that after Kavanaugh and his failure to take any responsibility for his misbehavior as a teenager, whether he has memory of or did or did not, there was no expression of regret. And I think there's a lot to regret in the way that we've all behaved, as you say, it's it's sort of that myth of the good person. We've all Mm -hmm. intentionally or unintentionally caused harm to each other. And you talked about the failings of Mark Zuckerberg's apology in front of Congress. Like, when you think about what we're in right now, what does a good apology to people of color look like? What does it like? How would you model that? Yeah, massive, for starters. Yeah. I do think that my apology model can provide a framework that might be helpful for white people because it offers different points of entry to action, right? Like none of these things is enough on their own. And you got white people have got to figure it out themselves. And other people say, no, you got to talk to black people. And other people say, it's not enough just to be learning things. You have to change things. And some people say, you got to learn the stuff first before you try to change things. You know, like, so there's a lot yeah. of disagreement. And none of the, it's because none of those steps in themselves make enough of a difference. But if everybody pitches in where they can or where they're most suited to pitching in, then we could actually make some progress over time, I think. And so these four steps are essentially learning about the harm Mm -hmm. in in every way you can. And there are a lot of ways available and making public statements about it, which is part of what's happening now with all the white people showing up alongside their brethren, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) In the protests and holding signs, literally signs that say Black Lives Matter and other things, remember their names. And the third thing is making some kind of restitution, which may be possible on a large scale. And that's going to take a lot of pressure brought to bear on the people in power. And reparations is a subject that's right this minute closer to getting out of committee in the Congress than it has ever been. So more pressure might help with that. But those monetary reparations are not enough on a large scale we can work toward those kind of reparations, but also on an individual basis, there are lots of things people can do. And mm-hmm. I'm not going into all the details right now, but there are available routes to take. And then to pre- prevention is about making sure that we change the way things are set up. We change the basis for, for mm-hmm. example, right? Because so many things follow from poverty, so right. many things all those inequities, health inequities, education inequities, opportunity inequities. And so it's stopping the cycle, which, you know, and I think that's one of the, I think that's something that people can really ground into and understand sort of the failings of our justice system, both in the fact that here we go back to mass incarceration of Black people, 
and a deeply problematic system or the new Jim Crow. But I think we also understand on a very human level that is not satisfying and that when that there is no that this sort of Hammurabi code eye for an eye justice is not what we want is we don't want it to happen to someone else we Mm -hmm. want Mm -hmm. we want I think you and and this is from Michelle Alexander but most victims of violent crimes would prefer restorative Mm -hmm. practices for the person who hurt them rather than prison they want change not punishment and that seems I haven't been the victim of a violent, my brother was the victim of a violent crime and he wanted, he didn't want mm. the, to go to jail. He wanted him to get mm. help. So that's true for almost anyone. It's right. not it, it, satisfying. Yeah, it, isn't true. it isn't true for everybody, but it is true for many people. And it m- might, should be true for the, the body politic. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. When it comes to putting together your home, a great rug can make all the difference. A rug is really what pulls a room together and creates harmony. Nordic Knots offers a curated collection of rugs and timeless, high-quality essentials. They collaborate with leading designers and are the insider rug brand gracing some of the world's most beautiful homes. They have a wide-ranging collection, but we'll just talk about a few favorites today. The luxurious Grand Collection is known for its simple design, stunning colors, and high-quality wool. But if you're feeling a bit more bold, their designer collaborations are made with world-renowned designers and interior architects. Their Goodweave certified rugs are handmade and woven in all natural materials, like their super soft and beautiful New Zealand wool. At Nordic Knots, they make the process of rug shopping easy and enjoyable. And they always offer fast and free shipping from the U.S. To explore their rug collections, head to NordicKnots.com. Use promo code InnerCircle to get free rug samples. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Let's go back to, I think, the personal, because I think mm-hmm. with all of this, our inability, even thinking about those four steps and allowing the time for the first requires... I think wells of courage to sit in discomfort that we ha- have deprived ourselves from, and I'm not sure where why we we lack that stamina. But I feel it in myself too. And even in these times, it's we're just like, what can we do to make this go away? What can we do to make this better? I don't like feeling so uncomfortable. I think that's why we take to social media with such eagerness because it's so fast. Right. Everything happens in light at lightning speed. And the reactivity is so strong and we ought to know the conclusion we have immediately and react against it. And then somebody else reacts against that and then cancels you. And there's just this sort of hyper active reactivity. And if we slow things down, then the natural human processes have a chance to proceed. Human processing takes longer than that to reflect, you have to feel things, you have to allow meaning to arise, you know? Yeah. And this, okay, I want to try something on and please feel free to tell me that, but it comes from something that you wrote that really hit a chord with me. But Mm -hmm. I think for women in particular, and it seems like the women are the ones who are a lot of what I've noticed is a lot of silence from the men, from white men in particular, and that women are rushing to prostrate themselves and lash themselves and you talk about it 
you write, beginning this kind of inquiry also requires us to challenge our perfectionism. Mm -hmm. And that perfectionism is usually defined as having excessively high personal standards and overly critical self-evaluations. And I think as a woman, and I certainly identify with that deeply, we've been trained that if we're not good, if we're not perfect, that to be bad is the, the biggest sin in some way. And that anything that challenges those ideas of perfection is an extreme threat to our safety and survival. And you talk about, I think it's showing up for racial justice and how they make an explicit commitment to anti-perfectionism because it creates obviously so much fear as we try to address these societal wrongs. But how much of that just, if I acknowledge that I am imperfect, I die. Like how much programming do you think there is in women in particular, or really in all of us? I think it's extensive. I think you're right. And the other side of it, the other really unfortunate side of it is shame yeah, and despair. If you're judging yourself so harshly that any mistake or error or hurt you did to someone else means that you're bad, it's definitional. You are bad. Even mm-hmm. you, you even use those words. You are bad as opposed to even maybe you did something bad, but you're not bad. And shame interferes with productive action. Despair does too, for different reasons, right? And what we want is productive guilt. We want a reasonable, clear-eyed assessment of our negative effects, Yeah. right? That's what we want. And, and if we can do that, it, it counteracts shame. Mm-hmm. It's a route to feeling more engaged, capable of good action, capable of fresh starts, capable of reconnecting after a breach. All those things are so hopeful and so possible. But they're not if you're in this kind of binary, either I'm perfect or I suck or I'm damned. Yeah. I thought this, if you don't mind, if I could read a paragraph to you, because I thought this was also fascinating in terms of like how this might be gendered. So you wrote, In addition to the trouble we all have detecting our missteps, one research report suggests Mm -hmm. that men may have an even harder time seeing their mistakes than women do. A recent controlled study led by the California Institute of Technology, Wharton School, Western University, and ZRT Laboratory examined the effects of testosterone on human cognition and decision-making. Studying hundreds of men, the researchers found that higher testosterone levels decreased subject's ability to discern flaws in his thinking, which led to overconfidence. This finding suggests that it may behoove men, even more than women, to make purposeful inquiries into how they've made other people feel. Yeah, that's a heck of a burden, but I I think it's (laughs) called for. (laughs) Right? Yeah. And not only men, women are capable of hurting people and not realizing it or making mistakes and not realizing. But yeah. Yeah. That's wild. What do you, why do you think that, do you think that there's a biological role in this? Do you think that there's a biological sort of like men don't look back, no remorse, keep moving, keep, keep hunting? Is there, is there something about that? That's outside my area of expertise at all. (laughs) But I would say that even if there isn't a biological base or an evolutionary benefit, there's plenty of socialization now. That seems really clear to me. This whole model of 
leadership as someone who's sure of usually himself and independent and unquestioning and there's no doubt and real presidents don't apologize for their country because to be a real man in quotes means you, you don't you're not soft at all and apologizing looks like a sign of weakness i i disagree with that fundamentally but in that model in that dominant american model that's the way it is and everybody is taught that's the right way not everybody buys it <laughs> and not any, everybody has even has the option of going there and being leaders but it it does control a lot of people's thinking and in relationships women are supposed to be caring for the relationship and careful about it and keeping track of the emotions and men are supposed to be the doers yeah i think that's a pretty heavy burden for people yeah no certainly and i then i think that Socially, culturally, as you said, we don't have great models for how effective repair is made, in part because we, our society is very litigious. It's very, right now we're in the midst of cancel culture, which mm -hmm. is, I think, quite harmful and very reductive and binary. If we want to live in a world where there's no where there's no room for redemption, there's no room for errors, there's no room for learning, evolving, yeah, being yeah. better, then what's the point? How do you grow? I, yeah, how do you grow? I also understand the anger that people have, but it does feels very scary. Understa I understand why people are terrified to mess up. And I think it's interesting to even think about the medical model that you, when you talk about, and my dad's actually a doctor and my mom ran his office and my dad is an intensivist. He was a, he's retired now, but he was a pulmonologist and he was never sued because when things, obviously there were outcomes that were not desirable, of course. And a lot of people, he, he was in the ER a lot and a lot of people died. And he thinks that he was never sued, not because he never messed up, but because he always owned it and went to see the family and to talk to them. You bet. And it's interesting because my mom, when I was in high school, my mom had an aneurysm behind her eye. It was very terrifying. It had partially ruptured. She was having these headaches. And my dad was like, go get an MRI right now. They mm. flew, I think, that night to Phoenix to the world's best surgeon for this particular type of aneurysm and he aye, certainly aye, aye. saved her life and repaired her aneurysm but his team left gauze in her head and so mm -hmm. she had ongoing mm -hmm. issues she had to have another surgery to have it removed and yeah. when yeah. she told him it was you saved my life and I wanted you to know that this happened and they wouldn't talk to her and yeah. so she sued him even though it went against as a doctor's wife one against her code, but she was like, yeah. you have, all I need is an apology and an acknowledgement. And so, yeah, she's that's a great example. That's a great yeah. example. Cause I think that's how it is. I think that's how it is for many people. They just need, well, you, you write about that at length, right? That hospitals are now pursuing a different model where they just listen and acknowledge and take accountability for the fact that and they and you can do that and still protect doctors, right? Like they're not machines. Mistakes happen. Yes, and systems break down. It's not flawless. And that's the same question about perfectionism in a way, right? Can you tolerate something being less than ideal? And does that mean it's the worst thing? 
or just a bad thing? And does that mean the person is the worst person or just a person who made a mistake? I think that's a really good example because she wouldn't, she didn't want to do that. She didn't want to sue them. She had an incentive not to and just wanted to be recognized. She wanted her pain and the error to be acknowledged. And so I, I think accountability is really different from punishment. Mm-hmm. And accountability means that you, you have to reckon with what went wrong. You can do it compassionately to yourself. And I think people who are trying to make repairs and trying to make good apologies, really, I, I hope, I, maybe this book will help. I hope people who are trying to do this can be compassionate to themselves because it's a hard thing to do. And it's a hard sort of cultural model to go against, but it makes all the difference. And so compassionate accountability is my favorite phrase. But it also, as you delineate, like it also offers a path to not only become a more durable, more expanded, theoretically more evolved or better person, but it can enhance relationship, right? Like it can make, Mm -hmm. it can improve, it can, certainly our relationships can withstand it. And that everyone in some ways can win, even if the harm felt egregious. I'm trying to think of the example that you gave. Was it Reagan who visited? He went to the graveyard in Bitburg, where they were members of the SS, I, I, I think something like that. I'm yeah. sorry, I'm not, I, I might not get it right. And that was deeply offensive to a lot of people. And he didn't change his plan. He, he went anyway. And then after, didn't someone remark, I can't remember one of the was like, he's still my friend. And a friend he is made still it. my friend. Yeah, and, he, and a friend can make mistakes and or do wrong or something like that. He, he didn't forgive it. Was it Shimon Perez? Yeah, and he essentially was like, Reagan is my friend, and I don't condone this. And he made a mistake that so the can two hand- can coexist. Yeah, the two can coexist, right? Now, that's fancier than this kind of binary understanding of things. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. So when you coach people, and I'm assuming that apologies are better always, I feel like I prefer when my husband comes to me to apologize rather than when I demand an apology. But I think this is a really helpful list too, because you can, in the process of apologizing, theoretically limit or destroy everything that follows when, and I like this list, I think it's helpful. I'm sorry, but... 
I'm sorry if I'm sorry that or if you end it with not my fault or didn't mean it or Mm -hmm. I'm sorry that you see it that way. Going back to the basic, the model, the four steps, when someone comes to you or when you know that you've caused a wrong, is it important first to make sure that you're understanding exactly what it is and how it impacted them before you say anything at all? I think so. Yes. You said before you prefer it when your husband comes to apologize than if you have to demand it. And I know what you, I know what you mean, of course. But I also think that asking for the apology is often how you learn, how the other person learns that they hurt you. Right. Because right. we miss things. We don't always know. We often don't know. And so if you say to your husband, sorry, I don't mean to use you, but no, you can. I do. I make, he doesn't listen to the podcast with the frequency with which I like. And so I'm happy to make an example of him all the time and he never hears it. That's great. So if you say to him, if if someone reads this book and then they say to their partner, I think I need an apology from you. And first, what I want you to do is listen. It's less of a fight. Yeah. And does that, this sounds like a total cop out. I'm thinking of an old wound that I feel like we never, because in an effort to make everything better, mm-hmm. I don't think that we ever really sat with it because yeah. I, I don't ever want him to feel bad. And I hate yeah. feeling like someone, I'm making someone feel bad. Yeah. Do you think it always needs to be a verbal conversation or is sometimes is it better to write a letter? Oh my gosh. I think letters are brilliant. Yes. Okay. I advise letters all the time. And that one way to teach your partner is to write the letter that you want them to write to you. Mm. Everything that you really wish he would say that could put this to rest forever. And, And you learn a lot doing that. You learn what it is you actually need. And, you know, what... And it isn't lashing yourself. That's not what you need. And so then if your partner reads it, then he or she learns that what you need is this kind of version of compassionate accountability. And most people can do that. So it's more feasible by then. You actually can get what you need. And I like that. So have you seen couples where someone writes like, this is how I feel, and then enclosed in this is what I wish you would express back to me? Yeah, I think you can just write a letter, a pretend letter. Dear Elise. Yeah. I've been thinking about <laughs> what happened <laughs> 10 years ago and how we never really resolved it. And maybe I need to learn more about it from you, but maybe I already know about it. And here's what I want to say about mm. how accountable I am. That's not impossible. And you write that letter, you write that letter, and then you let him read it. Sometimes what happens, I think, too, that we stop ourselves because we don't know how like the the steps three and four, the restitution and the the not repeating it, like we don't know, I think it's scary to or or some things I think it feels impossible to make restitution for. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes I think it's impossible to say that will never happen again. Yeah. It, it might be impossible to say it, it, it might be impossible to say it'll never happen again, but you can sure improve your odds. I loved this moment in the book, too, because I think like the letter and allowing it to sit so that someone doesn't feel mm. like they need to react in that moment is so great because mm-hmm. you write you're writing about a couple. You write for many hearing another person's hurt doesn't come easily on any scale. The skill of listening to and honoring someone else's experience can be challenging. When a patient of mine was telling her husband about how he had hurt her, 
He kept giving her explanations. She finally said, you don't get to talk. I'm simply hurt. As with many of us, it was hard for him to understand what she needed. She later told me, it took him two days to see that I didn't want him to say, I'm sorry. I wanted him to know how it feels to be me. Yeah. Brilliant of her, huh? Yeah. Yes. Because isn't that what we all we want is just to feel seen and understood? I don't think it's all we want, but I do think it is something that we want <laughs> because we need all four steps. But that, that one is crucial, right? It's crucial, but not sufficient. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, how our need for the status quo and to return to everything feels fine between us. I, I, that's certainly mm-hmm. a pull that I feel in my own marriage is we hate conflict. And I think I I believe that my husband never really learned how to fight or have healthy disagreements. I don't think it was modeled for him. So he doesn't know how to do it. And I lose steam in being the one to instigate it. And so sometimes we'll just be mad and then go back to normal instead of addressing what I think is probably like the deeper issue. And it's interesting, too, because if you draw that out, you're in the context of you're talking about the the me me too movement and you said mm-hmm. and this is in the context of restitution too to powerful men affected by the me too movement feminist lawyer Jill Filipovic I hope I didn't murder yeah. her last name first suggested that they focus on how to make amends rather than how to return to power and I thought that was yeah. such an yeah. amazing sentence yeah and she has another great idea which is that you can consult people who know about this and pay them for the consultation I think she was the person that said that but I love that idea too because I think you can swap in power or status quo or comfort yeah, that we're yeah, just yeah. we're so good at glossing over I always use facial metaphors, but we'll just slap some makeup on it. Like we'd rather just conceal it and surface wise make it feel okay than to actually get at it. Here's a good example. Recently, there's been this blackface issue where comedians are apologizing for having used blackface and and Tina Fey removed the episodes of 30 Rock that featured it. And that's a reasonable thing to consider doing, I think. But it isn't anywhere near enough because... Mm -hmm because that does change the picture. Literally, if you're saying it changes the picture, those bad images are no longer there. But have we changed the circumstance that produced them? Have we changed our knowledge base enough? Have we used this moment to teach as much as we could about minstrelsy, about Jim Crow, you know, where the term Jim Crow came from, about why blackface is offensive. What is it about that? Because not everybody gets that yet. Okay, so this could be a public education opportunity. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. CarbonX is an environmental company that aims to empower people to make a positive impact on the planet. They've created a simple platform to help you make up for your carbon emissions by supporting climate-friendly projects. You can earn shareable badges based on how long you've been offsetting, and your subscription will go towards supporting new initiatives and carbon offsetting projects that have been independently verified to have removed CO2 from the atmosphere. You can choose a project that is meaningful to you, such as planting trees in deforested regions of the Amazon and investing in energy-efficient and renewable resources around the world. 
For the Goop podcast team, CarbonX wanted to cover our team's carbon footprint. They donated a subscription for us to support an energy-efficient cook stoves program in Uganda. To learn more about CarbonX, head to their website at carbonx.com. That's carbon with a K-X.com or download the CarbonX app. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. It's interesting, too. I was interviewing Dolly Chug, who wrote The Person You Mean to Be. I don't know if you know Dolly. Oh, She's like, yeah. no, but I heard the book. I've heard about the book. It's an amazing book. And she talks about that, too, just regrettable cultural behavior and those moments where you look back and you're like, how, what? Like, when, how was that okay? Because yeah. I think that's certainly what we're all, we're all sort of like, wait, what, co- what Halloween costumes are okay? Was that? racist like the subtle racism that I think we just never checked ourselves on and she talks about it as which I think is helpful because I think it gives people space to even to examine themselves without charge and then acknowledge and apologize Mm -hmm. and and make amends but she just talks about norm breaking and that we have to remember that we're on this continuum of things that were completely normal hundreds of years ago that it's like that how did how, what we, we just have to continue to break norms while also in some way having maybe sympathy isn't the right word empathy I don't know like having an understanding that things that some of these things when you look at them divorce from the time period are just outrageous but at the time it was norms and we're all responsible for that yeah, we're all responsible and we're individually responsible. But So we're not only individually responsible. Yeah. We grew up in this, we swim in this water, this yeah. racism water. So we've done racist things that we would now label racist. And we've had racist attitudes and we've had racist blindness in particular to a lot yeah. of things that are horrible when we look at them now. And okay, let's keep at it. <laughs> Let's yeah. keep changing that. Let's keep looking at it. Let's keep naming it and learning and maybe learn why we did that, why we thought that was okay. And yeah. what other things we might want to question that we thought were okay. Exactly. I think it's that sort of honesty too. It's like understanding ourselves and even the the somatic stirring of that seems fucked up. Yeah. Like at the end, you give this bit of a, a dating advice, which I was <laughs> like, this is excellent advice. And I think it's true for all of this. You write... When you're talking about relationships, start as you mean to continue. Mm. Like many people, you may put your best, that is, most accepting and agreeable, foot forward in the beginning of a relationship. The risk therein is that you misinform the other person about what's actually okay or good for you. The mistake of letting too many small misdeeds go unchallenged creates a bad pattern that's harder to break. It behooves you to know yourself and what you can comfortably tolerate versus what will drive you crazy or make you feel bad. You are teaching your partner or friend how to treat you. And I think we're culturally going through that process too. Of, wait, like recenter, like new moral compass. Mm-hmm. Where have we betrayed ourselves and each other? And what have we allowed? And now it's like the very necessary and understandably uncomfortable process of being like, wow, I have not behaved or acted in a way that is to anyone to my highest good or to other people's highest good it's a collective reckoning and it but it goes Mm -hmm. in it goes from our you know micro relationships to the macro yeah and in the case you're talking about the way you're talking about it is 
it's not acceptable to me for me to be the way I've been. Yeah. So it's a relationship with myself too. Yeah. And tapping into that, as you say, you have to know yourself. So it's tapping into this sort of what I've been thinking about this a lot in the context of I went to a boarding school called St. Paul's and we're in the news a lot because of a lot of bad things that happened. And we weren't alone. I think that those things happen at many institutions, but it feels particularly egregious at St. Paul's. And just talking to my friends, it's like, as again, and speak thinking of Justice Kavanaugh, it's like, where, where was I complicit? And again, it goes back to those norms of what did I know about and not say anything about? Mm-hmm. What was I aware of? As a child, as a teenager, what was my responsibility versus the responsibility of the adults on campus? Who was I friends with who where there that had behavior I would never condone? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's never too late, as you say, to think about these things. And the casual, casual cruelty that we tolerated and witnessed and heard about between people growing up, there's a lot of that. So much bullying, so much othering, hazing, obviously terrible treatment of women at the time when I was at St. Paul's, casual use of extremely homophobic slurs, which I did speak out about as a student, but like... When I think about, I think when we're talking about norms, God, it's only recently that that's changed, yeah. which is wild. Yeah. We cert- we have so much to collectively atone for. But when you say it like that, it is very serious. But I think there's so much hope embedded in that. Atonement isn't just punishment, self-punishment. It's also establishing yourself as a more moral person so that you can go forward being better. Yeah. This is, I think this is helpful, if you don't mind, again, if I read to you, but you, Mm -hmm. this is actually about Brett Kavanaugh, which who I did not expect to be talking about so much this morning. (laughs) You said, around the time of the confirmation hearing for now Justice Brett Kavanaugh, people debated how responsible an adult should be for earlier adolescent misbehavior. One essential factor seems to be whether there is evidence that the adult has learned and changed since the past harm occurred. In the hearings, not only did Justice Kavanaugh not show that he has an, that he as an adult had changed an attitude or approach from how he behaved as an adolescent, he also emphasized his ongoing attachment and commitment to the behaviors he engaged in long ago. He was remarkably combative in response to questions about his responsibility. In my cognoscenti column of that time, I pictured an alternate reality that would have revealed maturity. Can you imagine how different our view would be today if now Justice Kavanaugh had said something like, I don't remember doing anything like that, but as a teenager and young man, I was often intoxicated and I did behave badly at times. I hope I didn't hurt you, but if I did, I am deeply sorry for all the pain my awful behavior caused you. And it's interesting just even reading that. If I had heard that as someone who was triggered and enraged by what Mm -hmm. I saw, I think I would have been able to like my impression of him even if our politics don't align would have changed yes and he doesn't at that point he's still not even saying i did this right he doesn't have to yeah because he doesn't know i mean if he doesn't know which we don't know but if he doesn't know he must know that it was possible 
And so here's another thing that could happen next is Kavanaugh and other people who don't know whether they did the deed can still help prevent it happening in the future. Yeah. And that would be a really good, noble step for them. Let's clear up the confusion, right? So Mm -hmm. maybe not so nobody else gets mistreated like I was, but so that there isn't confusion about it. No, it's true. It's like the example that you offer of the woman who was brutally assaulted by, yeah, yeah, by athletes. The football players. The football players who then her life's work is now in coordination with coaches talking to these young football players. Right. And I think that gets to the end. It's amazing. And that gets to the end. Let us not, let's not perpetuate this trauma cycle and let's make sure that it doesn't happen again. And the coach who didn't get it mm-hmm. at the time, who, who very painfully didn't, for her, didn't get it, also gets some credit for realizing he was wrong yeah. and, lis- and listening to her teach him how wrong he was and then inviting her to teach the current athletes. That's a good story. Yeah. And it's, as you say, it's never too late, right? It might be too late to repair an existing relationship, but it's still Mm. never too late. Even theoretically beyond the grave. I know you offer examples of that and you talk about, I interviewed Eve Ensler as well after the apology, which I thought was just such an amazing book, but that sometimes for, for healing, even if someone's gone, you can write a letter and and make an attempt to address the pain. Yes. And isn't that better? Yeah. I think we're all searching for peace. And it's like the example at the very beginning of the person who seemingly innocuous thing, but like 30 years after hitting a parked car on accident, he sent a check to mm-hmm. the police department, right? For a thousand dollars, hoping that they could help him find the rightful owner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It sits on right? our conscience. Yes. I hope we see people taking those inventories and addressing and clearing their consciences, but hopefully also helping other people heal in the process. Yeah, because there's so much there's so much hurt that isn't that doesn't have to remain unhealed. There's hurt that is unnecessary. And we can go some distance to making that less. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Molly House. For more from Molly, be sure to check out her book, A Good Apology, Four Steps to Make Things Right. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.